0: The following is a recording from ACF Church in Eagle River, Alaska. If you would like to join us on a Sunday morning, we would love to have you be our guest. Service times are 9 and 11 a.m. We hope you'd consider partnering in the work God is doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you would like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can safely give by texting a donation amount to 907-341-4213. Now, prepare your hearts to hear God's word.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the elders here at ACF. Today, we are wrapping up our series, American Jesus. We are called to be like Jesus, but unfortunately, Unfortunately, many times we end up looking like a caricature of Jesus rather than who he really is. We distort one or more aspects of his character until he's barely recognizable. Over the past three weeks, we've talked about three caricatures of Jesus. Week one, prosperity Jesus. We talked about the tendency to either think that God wants us to be rich or that being close to God is best done by being poor. Most of us tend to view money through one of these two lenses. But in reality, there are righteous rich and there are unrighteous rich. There are righteous poor and there are unrighteous poor. What matters more is faithfulness of character and generosity of heart. Bottom line, without Jesus, you are poor. With Jesus, you are rich, regardless of the contents of your wallet. We were challenged to be generous in our faith and in our finances. Week two, passive Jesus. We talked about the tendency to view Jesus either as passive, gentle, what I call flannel graph Jesus, where he's wearing pastels and he's got a lamb around his neck. Either that or the opposite, where he's, he's uh, aggressive, where he's overturning ta- uh, tables and he's, he's just yelling at everybody and he's looking to pick a fight with whoever he can, kind of like Rambo or something. Um, the reality is he's neither passive nor aggressive. He's active. He's willing to ask the hard questions and say challenging things that have the potential to change us for the better. Week three, last week, Prepper Jesus we talked about the tendency to view Jesus primarily as a tool of self-preservation against the apocalypse. A prepper Christian is overwhelmed by fear and lives with the mentality that not that everyone else is going to die, that they're going to be the only ones that live, and they're okay with that. Brian challenged us that our goal should be not to live for eternity, but to live for Jesus. Instead of having a personal bunker, we are called to live out the kingdom of God each day in our lives. This week, as we wrap up the American Jesus series, we'll be looking at postmodern Jesus, also known as politically correct Jesus, coexist Jesus, Oprah's Jesus, it's all good Jesus, inclusive Jesus, pluralist Jesus, non-judgmental Jesus, and fusion Jesus. If I've left any out, please forgive me, because I would never want to offend anybody. Postmodern Jesus would never want to offend anybody. My mom grew up on a dairy farm, and on this farm they had a lot of cats. Cats are very handy in keeping the mice population down. But one day my mom saw this cat out of the corner of her eye, but this was no ordinary cat. It was one of those black cats with the the white stripe running from its uh, head to its tail, and uh, fortunately she noticed this, that this was not a cat, and she didn't pick it up. No matter how much my mother thought that this was a cat, it didn't change the fact that it was in fact, a skunk. It's one thing to have the wrong idea about the nature of a cat. It's quite another to have the wrong idea about who Jesus is. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We uh, thank you for um, the opportunity that we have to come and sing praise to you, uh, come and be challenged by your word, and uh, to invite you to uh, do a new work in our lives So lord this morning we ask that you would do just that we invite you into this place We ask that uh, You would open our hearts that you would clear our minds We give you thanks in jesus name. Amen Today we are looking at the notion of postmodern jesus jesus being Whoever or whatever you want him to be We've all seen man on the street videos Where a bunch of people are asked a question about something And then they all give their responses And then kind of you put all these things together And you have a fuller picture of what the topic is Not always but sometimes Well I did a uh, more sophisticated version of this uh, In the last uh, week or so I googled myself I uh, I typed in the question, who is Brent Hoffman? And I'd like to introduce you to myself today. So here's what I found. I am a commercial real estate agent in Gainesville, Georgia. I'm also a doctor in Portland who specializes in skin biopsies. In addition, I'm an Air Force nuclear weapons expert I'm an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at Duke University. I'm an architect in Iowa. Um, I'm a one-star drywall contractor in St. Paul, Minnesota, (laughs) who is, quote, unable to perform elementary drywall repair, end quote. And apparently I like the Partridge family and the theme song to Hawaii Five-O. So do you feel as though you know me a little bit better now as a result of that introduction? Anyone? No? That's not me. Now, what if I were to tell you that I am first and foremost a child of God, that I grew up in Pennsylvania, I have a couple of degrees, and I met my wife Liz while serving at a church In Salem, Oregon That Liz and I have been married for 16 years That we worked in higher education for about a decade And then we moved to Alaska And have been living here for about six and a half years We currently work at a camp And have uh, a real heart for Czech Republic We've taken two ministry trips there in the last few years Also, both Liz and I love spicy foods We are also Lord of the Rings fans. And the uh, skillet concert at the State Fair, it was epic. (laughs) Although a little bit short, I must say, but it was awesome. If you wanna know more about me, you can talk to Liz, you can talk to other people who know me, my family, and my friends. Uncritically Googling myself didn't yield very accurate results. On the other hand, if you've heard me introduce myself, and if you talk to people who know me well you'd have a pretty good idea of who i am we know this intuitively yet as a whole our cultures approach to christianity in general and jesus specifically often resembles a random google search <clears throat> we take quite seriously the whims of a hollywood producer the uh, a best selling author or a TV figure, some random guy that has some interesting ideas. It's not that uncommon for people to take this approach, kind of a pooling from different sources, uh, to find out who Jesus is. Maybe rather than pooling our ignorance and listening to what random people say about Jesus, perhaps we could listen to what Jesus says about himself. Perhaps we could listen to what others who knew him, who walked with him, say about him. It's too bad that we don't have a book that could help us with this, isn't it? Maybe instead of making Jesus who we want him to be, we would be better, do better, to seek out who he really is. Genesis one twenty-seven says that, God created mankind in his own image. However, we have flipped things around a bit. We have a tendency to attempt to create God in our image. So, as we look at postmodern Jesus, it seems like it would be a good idea to define postmodernism. I've spent way too much time over the last couple of weeks trying to do just this. And after lengthy study... Here is what I found. One does not simply define postmodernism. Thank you, Boromir. And here's why. Because to define postmodernism would violate the postmodern premise that no definite terms, boundaries, or absolute truths exist. So by its nature, postmodernism avoids definition. Defining postmodernism is a bit like trying to nail jello to the wall. It doesn't work very well. But we can describe it. So here's a list of postmodern characteristics. Uh, these beliefs and practices are personal rather than universal, but in general, postmodernists think, or feel might be a better word, the following. There is no absolute truth. The notion of truth is a contrived illusion, misused by people and special interest groups to gain power over others. Truth and error are synonymous. Facts are too limiting to determine anything. What is fact today can be fiction tomorrow. Today, butter might be healthier than margarine. Tomorrow, margarine might be healthier. Opinions are preferred to facts. Logic is limiting. Traditional authority is false, corrupt, and oppressive. Postmodernists are disillusioned by unfulfilled promises of science, technology, government, and religion. Postmodernists hold that all religions are valid. However, they do tend to prefer New Age inclusive religions, and they really don't like anything that says that Jesus is the only way. There's more, but hopefully you you get the idea of what postmodernism is. Another reason it's tough to define postmodernism is that postmodernism defines itself in contrast to modernism, and modernism defines itself in relation to premodernism. So we have premodern, modern, modern, and postmodern. Professor Alan Yeh, from Biola University does a great job of summarizing these terms. And here's how he explains them. Before the Enlightenment, people were basically pre-modern. They had a belief in spirits and demons, in the supernatural, in miracles and superstition, and almost anyone in this world was religious in one way or another. Then along came the Enlightenment, rationality, the Industrial Revolution, and science. This ushered in the age of modernism. There was hope and unlimited optimism in the potential of man. People felt like they didn't need religion anymore since everything was explainable and humans can accomplish anything they set their mind to without reliance on any god. The 20th century was the culmination of modernism. But when two world wars, the Holocaust, the atomic bomb a Cold War and the bloodiest century in the history of mankind occurred. Well, needless to say, optimism died. So, near the end of the 20th century, people switched to postmodernism. Clearly, science can't solve everything. In fact, science has proven its capability to destroy as, well, as much as to improve life. So, spirituality came back with a vengeance. Though notice I did not say religion, but spirituality, because organized religion was looked upon with suspicion. People turned to new age solutions. Absolute truth became replaced with relative truth. Authenticity became more important than truth. And people longed for meaning and relationships, but were skeptical and cynical about everyone and everything unless they proved themselves trustworthy first. The late Stanley Grenz, professor of theology at Regent College, gave a helpful illustration in his book, A Primer on Postmodernism, using Star Trek, the original series, versus Star Trek The Next Generation as examples par excellence of modernism and postmodernism. Do we have any Trekkies in the room? All right, a few of you are willing to admit it. Awesome, okay. So first, modernism. Star Trek, the original series, was all about the achievement of mankind in going where no man has gone before. Spock, the half human, half Vulcan, wanted to be all Vulcan, just logic with no emotions. Kirk was shoot first and ask questions later. In contrast, postmodern Star Trek, the next generation, was about going where no one has gone before. It's much more PC and features Data the Android, who, though all machine, wants to be human and feel emotions. Captain Picard was aided by Counselor Troi and was much more prone to negotiation than firepower. Here's another helpful quote relating to modernism and postmodernism. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, there was a slogan that went, question authority. It was a modernist thought to the core. Saying that we must question tradition if we are to discover truth. But in the 1990s, the slogan changed to question reality. That's postmodernism. It is saying there is no true reality, not even your own. Here's a diagram that illustrates the difference between pre modern, modern, and postmodern. So, pre modern, a point, because God put it there, and that's the way it's always been. Modern and arrow, trajectory, onwards and upwards with inevitable progress. And then postmodern. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that is, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that. So what does postmodern Jesus look like? Essentially, he or she is a catch-all religious buddy that may look like a vending machine, Prosperity Jesus, a yes man, Passive Jesus, or an insurance policy, Prepper Jesus. Postmodern Jesus won't offend you, won't require anything of you, won't ask anything from you, and will change into something, someone completely different if you want him or her or it or them to do so. A significant religion of our day is called somethingism. Liza and I encountered this uh, when we were in Czech Republic not long ago. In Czech Republic there are supposedly more people who believe in UFOs than who believe in God. So somethingism is an unspecified belief in an undetermined transcendent force. It might be uh, spirit guides, or it might be the force, like in Star Wars, or it might be um, positive energy, or karma, or the universe. People will often use the phrase spiritual but not religious to explain themselves. With conviction, they say, I don't believe in limiting faith to any specific deity or system of beliefs. So let's look at how this way of looking at the world would apply in uh, another situation. Let's let's apply it to marriage. So what if you ask somebody, are you married? And their response was, well, yes, I'm married, but not in a way that brings limitations like fidelity, love, or commitment to any particular person. How do you think that's going to fly? not too good. In the book of Acts, Luke, the same guy who wrote the third gospel, which bears his name, details the events of the early church. One of the key leaders of the early church was a colleague of his known as the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. He started out as a very religious man who persecuted the followers of Jesus. In fact, it wasn't enough for Paul to persecute the followers of Jesus where he was, but he wanted more. So he obtained special permission to travel 135 miles, a six-day journey on foot, to continue persecuting Christians in Damascus. Well, on his way there, Paul met Jesus in an amazing way, and it transformed his life. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9. It's not an overstatement to say that after Paul's encounter with Jesus, that he was a new man. Now, instead of traveling to the ends of the earth as he knew it, in order to persecute Christians, he traveled to a lot of different places, to much of the known world, to tell people about Jesus. A significant portion of the book of Acts recounts Paul's experiences in taking the message of Jesus to much of the known world. The more time I spend in the Word of God, the more I realize that there is nothing new under the sun. Today we're going to look in Acts chapter 17. In the span of this one chapter, Paul is taking the message of Jesus to three different groups of people that are remarkably similar to the pre-modern, modern, modern, and post-modern groups we've been talking about. This morning, you may find it helpful to go old school and pick up one of the Bibles that are in front of you in the, in the, the seats in front of you. Um, Acts chapter 17 is found on page 926 and 927. Paul encounters three different groups of people in Acts 17, pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. And in order to avoid confusion, we're going to handle them in each of these in this order rather than in the order that they appear in the passage itself. So, in Acts 17, verses 10 to 15, Paul encounters the Bereans, who, in many ways, are pre modern in their outlook. They held the scriptures to be their final authority. On the back of their camels, they had the bumper sticker that, that reads, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. They knew that the Bible was trustworthy, so if it was in there, that was all that they needed. That was enough for them. Verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They eagerly examined the scriptures to see if the things that Paul is saying are true. As pre-modern thinkers, they didn't have a lot of barriers to their faith. Scripture was their final authority. So, What Paul did was to show them from the scriptures they had at the time what we would call the Old Testament written hundreds of years earlier, prophecy of Jesus as the Messiah. His lineage, his virgin birth, life, triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding a donkey, his persecution, betrayal by a friend, the false witnesses, his scourging, his hands and feet Being pierced, men gambling for his clothes, his condemnation as a criminal, his burial in a rich man's tomb, and his ascension into heaven. These are just a few of the things that Paul may have shown them from words written hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. I can imagine Paul reading passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53 pointing out these things, and the Bereans realizing that the Messiah that they were looking for, that they were waiting for, was in fact Jesus. In verse 12, we read that many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. From time to time, you will encounter people who have a pre-modern outlook. And they will likely respond really well to simply showing them who Jesus is from the Bible. So that's the Bereans, the pre-modern thinkers. Next, we have the let's go into the beginning of chapter 17. So Paul encounters another group of people, the Thessalonians, okay? Now, these guys had something resembling a modernist perspective of the world. Reason, science, logic were more important to them. Verses 2 to 4. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, Is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We see that on three Sabbaths, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining to them and proving to them that Jesus had to suffer and would raise from the dead. Some of them were persuaded and followed. Undoubtedly, you have encountered people who have a modernist outlook. They don't necessarily hold the Bible in high esteem. They have a lot of questions. If they're open-minded, they may respond well to books like The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell or The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. If their doubts or hesitations are primarily from here up, they... they Intellectual, they, they may respond well um, to approaching their faith from a rather intellectual approach. With modernists, you may need to take time to demonstrate to them the historicity of the Bible, that it's a historically true document. Talk about manuscript evidence and corroborating evidence that the Bible is trustworthy before they'll believe something simply because it's in the Bible. So that's the Thessalonians, the modernists. Then, in the last half of the chapter, verses 16 to 34, Paul encounters a third group, the people in Athens. We'll spend a bit more time with them because I suspect that these people have an outlook on life that most closely resembles the outlook on life that we encounter in our daily lives today. The Athenians were a pantheistic people. They had many Greek gods and idols which they worshipped in temples all throughout the area. There were so many gods in Athens that one leader was quoted as saying, it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. The pluralistic postmodernism that we encounter today is similar to what Paul encountered in Athens. So let's see if we can learn some things from How he engaged the Athenians. Here's a verse that paints a vivid picture of the Athenians. Verse 21 says All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. These guys would have loved Pinterest, (laughs) they would have loved blogs they would have loved the comments section in online articles. The internet, that would have blown their mind. Postmodern America has a lot in common with them. One New Testament scholar describes our condition. We are like a fish in the ocean, always keeping its mouth wide open to ideas, afraid to shut it, and never taking a bite. Like Going to a diner. Does anyone here like diners? Okay, we lived in New York and they had some awesome diners. They had Greek food, Italian food, American food, breakfast foods, desserts, pies, you name it. The menu was like 10 pages long. It would be like going to a diner and bragging to all your friends about, look at all these options, but never committing to order anything from the menu. So what did Paul do when he encountered the Athenians? Verses 16 to 20. Now, while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. When Paul saw the many idols that they were worshiping, his heart was troubled. Let me ask you, when you encounter people who are worshiping gods, who are worshiping idols, idols perhaps of uh, of fame, of wealth, of rank, uh, of wealth or of experience, how do we respond to them Does it break our heart? Next, we see that Paul reasoned with the people where they were, the synagogue for Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplace for the Athenians. We see that every day he had conversations in the marketplace where they conducted business and where they spent their leisure time. Some of us think of evangelism as a a one-off conversation. We think of it uh, like something, maybe like a a tetanus shot where once every 10 years is is good, all right? But let me ask you, can you imagine if we took this approach in our relationships? What if I were to say to my wife, Liz, I have something very important to say to you. I'm only going to say this once. Here it is. Liz, I love you. Now, I'll let you know if it ever changes, but if not, you can just assume that what I just said, that it remains in effect. She's laughing now, but I can guarantee you that if I took this approach, that she wouldn't be laughing later. Things that are important are worth talking about more than once. Paul shows us here that talking with people, sharing who Jesus is, what he's done with your life, it's an ongoing dialogue, an ongoing conversation. Then, as Paul is telling them about Jesus and the resurrection, the people are interested in hearing more so they bring him to the Areopagus, essentially a high court in Athens, to formally hear Paul's teaching about Jesus. Quick question for us. When uh, we approach people with whom we've had faith conversations in the past, do they, uh, do they move toward us and ask us questions or do they hide around the corner trying to avoid us? As we are talking to people about the gospel, we want to do so in a way where people approach us. Don't unnecessarily burn bridges with people as you share your faith. Speak with love, first by your actions and then by your words. Don't win an argument, but lose a friend. Be respectful, don't talk down to people Our interaction with people should make people hungry for more. Paul begins his talk by addressing the obvious, making more of an observation at first than a value statement. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along... And observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription To the Unknown God. He starts his dialogue with them by identifying their core values and talking with them with respect. Essentially, he says, I see that you guys are very religious. You want to cover all of your bases, you don't want any possibility that your religion is lacking. I even saw a a catch all altar to an unknown God just in case you might have missed one of them. Then Paul offers them a surprise. He tells them about this unknown God. Verse 23, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then Paul does something that might surprise us a little bit. He quotes two of their pagan Greek writers, giving new and fuller interpretation to their meanings in reference to the God of the Bible. Verse 28, for in him we move and ha- we live and move and have our being. This is likely from a hymn to Zeus written over 600 years earlier by Epimenides of Crete. As even some of your own poets have said, quote, For we are indeed his offspring. This line is from the Sto- Stoic poet Aratus's poem, Phenomena. Paul quotes authors that the Athenians would have been familiar with. Now, he doesn't condone everything that they are saying, but he uses something from their experience to illustrate a truth about God. Paul meets them where they are, but he doesn't leave them there. Some years ago, my friend John, who was uh, working and living in a very artsy town, he was uh, going into some shops, looking at some different things, and uh, he happened to uh, be in a store where there was a, um, a New Age crystal section. And while he was in there, he mentioned to uh, the, the storekeeper uh, something about Jesus. Well, the person replied, Oh, Jesus was one of the beautiful people. Well, my friend John winsomely replied that Jesus was the beautiful person. He started where she was, but he didn't leave her there. Then Paul further clarifies who this unknown God is. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring... By raising him from the dead. Even though Paul is interacting with people who are much more interested in ideas and experiences than with truth, Paul ultimately deals in truth. Essentially, Paul says to them God is not made of silver or gold, He's not made with human hands. God is calling us into right relationship with Him through the work, through the person of Jesus, who demonstrated his authority over death by being raised from the dead. As we share our faith with people, testimonies are great. Paul had an awesome testimony, and he shared it quite frequently, and we should share our testimony frequently as well. Um, It's a powerful thing. You've probably heard the statement, no one can argue with your story. The only problem is that testimony by itself is not enough in a postmodern era. People probably won't try to debunk your story, but you may hear them say something like this, I'm glad you found something that works for you. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. So, telling our story is great. But ultimately, as Christians, it's not just about an experience, it's about an experience with truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus makes a rather significant statement. Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Christians, we believe that there is truth and that truth matters. This truth can be expressed in a number of different ways. Here are just a few of them. So one of the most quoted passages in the Bible is a verse from John chapter 3. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, encountered Jesus under the cover of night. He had a lot of questions. He was a skeptic. He had a lot of doubts. And in the course of their conversation, Jesus said to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That was John three, sixteen to eighteen. Nicodemus shows up two more times in John's Gospel and by his actions, there's some indication that he may have become a follower of Christ. Another way that we express truth is through the use of creeds. One of the oldest creeds is the old Roman form of the Apostles' Creed. It dates backly to 140 A.D. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, and buried. The third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And thence, from thence, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. What we believe is important. And like the Apostle Paul, it's important that we know what we believe and that as we share our faith, we're clear about what it is and who it is that we believe in, even if we are talking to people who have a postmodern outlook. Here's another way of saying it in more contemporary language. God made the world. We messed it up. He sent his son, Jesus, to fix what we broke. He carried out the plan perfectly. He died in our place. God accepted his death on our behalf and brought Jesus back to life as proof of this. Now, we are invited to quit Team Sin and join Team Jesus and to live a new life that goes forever. This is what we believe. Christ came to earth to save sinners. Who Jesus is is important. Watch this video with me.
0: He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's. Eating- He's available for the tempted and the tried, he sympathizes and he saves, he strengthens and sustains, he guards and he guides, he heals the sick, he cleans the lepers, he forgives sinners, he discharges debtors, he delivers the captive, he defends the feeble, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the age. The diligent and he purifies the meek I wonder if you know him He's a key to knowledge He's a well frame of wisdom He's a doorway of deliverance He's a pathway of peace He's a roadway of righteousness He's a highway of holiness He's a gateway of, a gateway of glory Do you know him? Well, his life is vastness. His goodness is limitless He's everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him, for yet he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible. Of your hand You came out with him, and you came not live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him. but they found out, they couldn't stop him. Pilots couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him.
1: of us has to answer this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Let's read the final verses of Acts 17 verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So, Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Just like the Athenians who heard Paul's message about Jesus, there are three responses that we have and that those around us have. People responded and still respond in three ways. First, some sneer. They mockingly reject the message of the gospel. Two, some want to hear more. They are seeking for God to reveal himself to them. And three, some become believers. They become followers. So this morning, if you are sneering at the gospel... We want you to know that you are welcome here. We ask that you don't throw things at us, but we want you to know that you are welcome here. Bring your doubts. Bring your tough questions. I would challenge you, though. Don't just read blogs that take pot shots at Christianity. Dig a little deeper. Open God's Word. See what Jesus says about himself. See what others say about Jesus before you write him off completely. If you're in that second category and you want to hear more, keep plugging in. Join a life group. I have great hope for you. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 says, You will seek me And find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And if you're in that third category and you want to be a follower of Jesus, today would be a great day to start that journey. So in a minute, the worship team is going to lead us in a song of reflection and some anthems proclaiming who Jesus is and what we believe And those of us who are followers of Christ are going to come to the front to take communion. In taking communion, we take a piece of bread which represents the body of Christ broken for us. And we dip it in a cup which represents the blood of Christ that he bled out for us. Communion is a powerful thing causes us to reflect on the death of Christ on our behalf. It calls us to put to death the sin that we have in our own life as a result of what God has done for us. It's a celebration of what we believe, and it's powerful as we do this act together. And it's it's a little bit like an appetizer where it it shows us what is coming next. It helps us to anticipate when Christ will return and when he will establish his kingdom in fullness. So if you're a follower of Jesus, even if today's the first day of your journey with him, join us in taking communion as we sing. For some of you, today's the day you want to start following Jesus. And if this is you, Join me in prayer. Jot a note on a communications card. We want to baptize you. We want to celebrate you with you. This is a big deal. Um, So pray with me. Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. I believe God raised you from the dead. I want to live the way you want me to. My sin drags me down. Would you take it from me and lift me up? I want to be on your team to follow your ways, to be like you. I need your grace. Lord, for those who are placing their trust in Christ, in you, giving you the keys, we ask that you would fill them with your spirit. Would you fill them with your joy? as we confess our sins and turn to you, you are faithful to forgive, and this is cause for celebration. Father, for those who are seeking, Lord, would you show yourself to them? And for those who are sneering, who are not interested in you at all, God, You are a big God. Will you break through? And until then, Lord, would you help us to love them with the love that you have for them? Lord, we confess that we have spent a lot of time trying to make Jesus into our image because it's easier to live according to our own version of you than it is to view you as you are and live the way that you are calling us to live. Today, we want to stop trying to shape you into our image. And we invite you to shape us, to transform us, to be like Jesus. We invite you to renew us, to transform us, to change us. Would you change our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you change our will? In Jesus' name we